Happy Friday. We have a great guest today, Mr. John Warner. And you have got to stick with us while we talk about his expertise in healthcare, aging, longevity. But before we do that, I want to give a quick thank you to Serenity Engage, who once again is powering our. All right, welcome back. And I'm happy to turn it over to a refreshed and recharged Catherine Wells. Yes, a refreshed and recharged because I got to take a long weekend last weekend for the first time in many years. Awesome. So it was very nice. I got away from the city, Good. got into the mountains a little bit. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, so really excited to have John Warner here. John, um, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Yeah, so we would love it if you would tell our audience a little bit about your background, who you are, what brought you to healthcare, what um, what really drives you right now, what your passion is. Okay, I'll keep the story short. I've had a long career. Uh, I fell into healthcare completely by accident. Um, you may not know this, Kathy. I was in the oil industry nearly 30 years ago, huh. went out into management consulting. Uh, my first client was a pharmaceutical company. Second one was biotech. Third one was a large healthcare system. I was doing process re-engineering uh, in those organizations, and I kind of got typecast very quickly. And before I knew it, I was just picking up mainly healthcare clients, just because that's what credentialed me. Uh, as that career unfolded, I started working my way down the food chain from large parts of healthcare into more startup organizations, which is a lot more fun because they move a lot faster. <laughs> and in the last eight to 10 years, it's really been in the space that I'm very passionate about, which is you know, aging and longevity. Uh, for me, uh, we spend 80% of our dollars in healthcare on the 50 plus population, um, and yet we don't have enough really good solutions out there to help them in a variety of ways. So I, I still have an interest in healthcare generally, but um, maybe 80 or 90% of what I do is in that aging uh, and technology and innovation space. And what caused you to get excited about the aging and, and the innovation in the aging space? Yeah, there's two things really. I, I think one of them is there's a lot of blue ocean of space out there, and I think that's opportunity. We know it's a big population, we know it's living longer, um, but I don't think a lot of people are solving for the unmet needs in the space. Um, so I think we've got fantastic opportunity to help older adults, but also to do well, uh, do well as a startup in the space. So I love encouraging people uh, to, to come into it. I think the other aspect is, I think people don't understand it very well. Uh, I've just used a pejorative term, 50 plus. Well, that's 120 million people uh, in the US alone. Um, you can't possibly serve 120 million people. So you have to start thinking about it in much more granular, non-monolithic ways. Um, and I think that's our job. Our job is to split it up into sort of tribes, if you like, and really understand what those pain points are for individual groups of people. Um, so that's that's kind of what I spend my time doing is trying to understand it. Of course, I've sailed into the population myself now. When I started this, I wasn't, but I'm well into 50 plus by myself. So there you go. I uh, want to bring up that's really interesting uh, because I, you know, I've got, I started uh, in this space when I was 27. So a little over 10, 11 years ago. And a lot of my friends were looking at me kind of like, you know, what's wrong? Uh, you know, I have a physics background, healthcare, you know, pre-med track, stuff like that. And they're like, 
that doesn't sound like fun or cool or interesting. And I'm like, you know, believe it or not, that's what we need though. We need to kind of reinvigorate like the idea that this is a cool industry. There's a lot of positive impacts you can have on people and your grandparents, your own parents, your own aging. And, and that's what I want to kind of build is that excitement around the, the solutions we can create. Uh, yeah. It's not all about going to be that next cool app that's out there. You can have a real impact on people today that will carry them you know, well into the future. Well, we're all going to get there, I think, aren't we, too? So, I mean, I, you know, as young as you may be, you can't avoid aging. So not paying attention to it makes no sense. So even if you don't believe that older people are cool, <laughs> you better get used to the idea pretty quick. You're going to be there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for those of you who are listening to our show live, please ask questions. We're, we have the expert right here. So ask any questions and we'll get an answer for you, even if it's after and you're watching this on video. Um, so while there's a siren going by outside, I will ask the, the question. Um, let's talk a little bit about the idea of needing a better, richer, and more open population health data system in the future. What is it that has you think that, and and what can we do about that? Well, great question. Um, and as, as you know, I've been working on this in particular. So so when, when COVID uh, came along, I, I particularly wanted to attack population health data because I think COVID showed us how poor our systems are. And I, I don't think I know of another industry that's got such a poor view of its customer, uh, whether you call it a patient, whether you call it the member in a, in, a, uh, in a plan or it's a member in terms of assisted living or independent living. Um, we know a little bit, but it really is only a little bit. And what we know tends to be half the clinical story. We tend not to routinely collect background data on people these days. Um, and then even worse, we collect very little in the psychosocial realm. Uh, in fact, companies like Google and Facebook do a way better job in terms of that than we do in healthcare. And yet we know anecdotally that uh, some of those social contextual factors make a huge difference to healthy thriving. Um, you know, do people feel lonely? Do they feel depressed? Uh, are they well fed? Uh, can they get from A to B uh, from a transportation perspective are way more important. And we know this anecdotally because in other countries, individuals will live with a lot of comorbidities or multiple conditions if they feel relatively happy. Um, so I think the answer to that is to improve our data systems. So I've been working on that subject uh, quite hard in the last six months because I think we need to go back to first principles. Uh, and redesign the tools that we're deploying so that we gather that, uh, that information. And in some ways, it's, a, it's an attempt to go back to where we were. Uh, the magic time would be 1971. I think 371, it's kind of the Marcus Welby MD era, era. Doctors would have been going to homes and they would have routinely, anecdotally collected some of the data that we're talking about. But of course, now we're, they're all hidden behind EMRs. Um, and, you know, we've gone from a 25-minute doctor visit on average in 1970. We're now down to eight minutes, and most of that time is filling in that EMR. Uh, so, you know, how much can we really do in eight minutes now um, in terms of that data set? So um, I'm, I'm working quite hard at thinking what's a better rubric for starting to go and fill in the gaps in terms of what's missing by way of data. Do you think that's being driven by health insurance companies or cost or, or why that? I mean, that's what, you know, a third basically of the time that was back in the 70s, right, for the visits, right, from 25 to eight minutes. 
what's driving that? Is it dollars? Is it money? Is it people? Yeah. Well, I don't know how controversial you'll allow me to get uh, on. on I uh, love the better. The more controversial, the better, because this is some of the things that bother me, though, because we've gone to home visits for most of our clients because it's better for them. They get more sure. connection face to face. So I really think it's important. So I think before the show, we were talking about a little bit of this just in terms of, you know, cognitive bias. And of course, there's the positive and the negative side of all of that. Right. You can be manipulated and uh, as well as incentive to do the right thing. I, I think, you know, the overarching answer is follow the money. Um, you know, individuals get locked in. You know, we know we've had a fee for service system for many years in healthcare. Uh, there have been attempts to try and shift that, that whole idea of volume to value. Um, but in reality, have we really dislodged the major systems, you know, beds and heads in hospitals is still alive and well, how hospitals make money. Uh, drug companies, I think, uh, you know, since 1971, um, drug um, sales are up by something like 6,700%, uh, you know, per capita. So uh, it's, just, it's just incredible. Uh, what our systems do to go and put profits in the pocket of individuals on legacy systems. And it makes things very hard to change. So I think money is a big driver. Uh, and then the institutional healthcare systems that, you know, are very high overhead in terms of what they do. It's why I believe in startups so much, because I think they can disrupt things in microcosm populations and show a different and a better way. When I think about the data and, you know, the, the idea that we've shrunk this amount of time from a doctor to eight minutes and most of that spent on an EMR. And then I think about senior care and all the different people who are seeing our older adults, whether they're residing at home or, or in, a, in a, an assisted living or a community. We have doctors who round, we have a long-term care pharmacy who serves them. We have a home health maybe coming in. My dad had home health come in and do his insulin shots. Yeah. Um, maybe some physical therapy, maybe sometimes there are a, what they call a fall risk. So then you have to hire home care to come in. So you have all these different people and the systems and the data are set up in silos. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's part of what you're talking about with the open population health data um, integrated together. Is that part of what you're driving to? Yeah, very much so. And I, and I think the beginning of that journey is that we need to individualize the care plans. You know, there's no one size fit all cookie cutter way of dealing, even with the three of us on this call right now, what we want will not be the same. Right. And not now and not as we age. And it's dynamic, it's changing, it's non-episodic. Our healthcare system is episodic. It says, if there's a problem, we'll respond. Um, and that's a problem. So, you know, we need wraparound services that are agile and flexible. And I think therefore we need good data in terms of who are we? How do we roll? What will we want in general? And then able to go and flex and change uh, according to our needs as we go forward. So I think data is sort of that solid platform, that rock on which we can build you know, the solutions that we, we then render. And I do think you make a good point. I think they, they've got to be end to end. Um, we've got a thousands of point solutions that are out there. Um, and it just gets again, overwhelming to go and understand, well, where do I go? What do I do in these circumstances? Whether I'm the person myself, the patient, or I'm someone caring for the patient. And that could be a professional carer, but it could be a non-professional carer. Yeah. Um, they, they are struggling to understand how to best do that. 
Yeah, very much so. And I think too, what's really, uh, to me is, is a proactive approach. It's let's get ahead of the, the challenges we're facing. And I feel, and you know, and all the stuff that we've, everyone I've run across, it's like a reactive. I think you said that best, John, is, you know, it's we're reacting, it's episodic. It's not, well, what can we do to get ahead of it? Let's, let's, yep. let's increase that, not only lifespan, but that health span. And how do we do that? And, and I don't want us to be so reactive or, you know, or episodic. I want us to think of it as the whole person. And that's why I'm a big believer. You know, my grandfather had dementia. He was my grandfather living with dementia. He wasn't a dementia patient, right? It's a person first with these underlying health issues. And I think in our society, we label everybody by their diagnoses. Yes, exactly. Which, yeah, or by their condition. Uh, yes, exactly. And, and I think that's why data is the key. You know, data does two things simplistically. I mean, it allows us to look back and look at the antecedents as to why someone's in the state they're in. So, for example, did they follow a for a long period of time an unhealthy diet? Mm. So now they've got conditions like diabetes, but, you know, maybe, you know, they're overweight and somewhat depressed as a result of that. So that's the looking back aspect. We need to be collecting that well so we can guide behavior earlier in terms of the consequences of those actions. But we also need to use it predictively. If you stay on this path, these are some of the outcomes that you may expect. Right. And let's again navigate a new journey as we do all of this. So data is incredibly powerful uh, if you can get the insights that it offers up. And they're not all silver bullets, of course, but I think we've got the tools these days to be able to relate data and look for correlation uh, and look for causation in a genuine way. Um, and we're not doing a good enough job of that. And I guess that's my point. Yeah, I, and I would agree with that. And now let's add in the psychosocial, social determinants of health factors. Um, so how do, we, how do we layer that in? and work towards getting the best possible care. Yeah, and, and that's the hardest thing of all. So in the data field, the biggest gaps are in the social determinant areas. You know, in fact, we see a lot of talk about social determinants and psychosocial, but we don't necessarily see a lot of action. So the EMR system has been very light and CPT codes have been light in terms of social determinants till very recently. We've seen CMS take this up in the last two years. Uh, healthcare plans are now starting to talk about it. So we've got a long way to go. And of course, we've got to break that term up. I mean, it's, a, it's a collective term for a lot of stuff going in. So if you think of this in Maslow's hierarchy terms, it goes from some very hard stuff at the bottom around access to healthcare and transportation, some of those things, all the way up to through to self-actualization. We are not routinely gathering that data. And you can't do it with happy faces so that, you know, when you do see a doctor, you know, you, you're, you're, that's all you're collecting. We've got to find multiple ways to collect this and have other people weigh in on it. Uh, so if we think about older adults as a good example, sometimes the people who know how, whether they're thriving or not are their sisters, brothers, daughters, sons, um, much more than they are the person themselves. So we need to find ways to get that data together at the same time as well. Yeah, but it's, I think it is a tough one because there's also a lot of opinion in that and perception, right, that gets layered yeah. in, which is the, the, another thing that data does is it helps take some of that out so you can actually have the conversation about what the numbers say yeah. and then form opinions around that. I think people are a little scared of psychosocial data because they see it as rather soft, you know, and if you think about 
uh, payers, if I'm un unkind to payers for a second, I mean, largely it's an actuarial system that's risk managing. So they're used to putting functional equations together with much harder data. So a condition that you can look at, you know, you can measure people's A1Cs, for example, as a proxy for diabetes, much harder to go and track something like mood or stress levels. Um, so we, we need to slowly think about how to best do this in the first place and then capture this over long enough periods of time to get efficacy. Uh, because there's no single bullet here. You know, you can't just measure it once and done and say, well, that'll do. You've actually got to be dynamic about what you're doing uh, and then look for lessons that you can extrapolate to on a wider basis once you've done that. Yeah, and I see some of that happening in apps uh, for the consumer even. Like there's an app called Calm that's a meditation app mm -hmm. and they ask you about your mood. And so sort of on a regular basis, I get my own little journal of my mood, but I'm yep. sure they're gathering some data. I'm sure I agreed to some agreement there that they could take my data and, and anonymize it and do something with it, which I'm fine with. Yeah. Um, and actually, Kathy, that's a good point. I mean, I think consumer side companies building apps actually have got a really powerful role to play. I think they're baby steps, but they're in the right direction. So, and it's, you know, it's not just apps like Calm, but, you know, Fitbits these days are starting to think about the backend data. The Apple Watch is doing the same. Uh, the Samsung uh, uh, health system's the same. Um, and, and I think it's showing some very interesting data, some of which is starting to make its way into bigger systems now. Uh, the All of Us project, for example, is trying to concatenate that, that data to see what patterns they can find. My only criticism is that it's a puddle right now. Um, as much as there's data out there, we don't have the insights from it at the level we need them. But I think we're on our way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's baby steps, but headed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. yep, yeah, very much so. So let's this talk about, oh, go ahead, Francis. No, go ahead, Kathy. No, all you, Kathy, go ahead. It's all me, it's all me, thank you. <laughs> my my brothers would say that's how I lived my life. It was all about me. <laughs> oh, sibling rivalry. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, um, I'm the baby of the family, so, you know. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, so let's talk about reimagining institutional care in a COVID-impacted world. How do you see institutional care in this world today? So we know COVID's had a massive impact, but we've seen the headlines in recent times. We've obviously had a huge impact in terms of individuals, uh, in terms of cases and deaths. So there's no avoiding the fact that we need to change things in that environment. Uh, there's a couple of things. I, I think we knew we had problems going in. I think COVID is just turbocharged problems that are already in institutional care. Yes. Um, so let's not pretend that, you know, we had perfect places and they just got unlucky. I think we lost the plot. We, you know, let standards drop, you know, even simple things like inspection standards, cleaning standards, some of those things. And I think we've all seen it. Uh, so I think that's one thing. But I think what COVID is doing, and this is the silver lining, is making us think uh, about what we've ended up with and how to avoid it. Uh, so isolation is one example of that. I mean, they've literally, in some cases, people have been locked in rooms and, and locked in their own small spaces. Uh, in some cases, with little chance of communicating. We know we've seen very specific incidences of mental health problems that have arisen. Uh, we know, I know in the nonprofit world, for example, in institutional living, we've seen problems with congregate meals. And how do you feed people? 
uh, when you can't do it together and do it cost effectively. So I, I think we've we've seen a number of clues that will allow us to go forward um, in new ways. And I think we've got to do that with a health centric mindset. So this is not about the asset. So often in assisted living, people are thinking about the assets and making sure the asset is making money. Um, and the humans that are in it are almost incidental in the equation. We've got to flip that around. Uh, the humans and how they behave and what they want have to be central and the asset needs to be adapted uh, with wraparound services both in the asset and then in the community that support the people that are in it. Uh, Richard Eisenberg uh, at, at PBS Next Avenue just wrote a really good article on this just in terms of some of the issues that I think we should be looking at uh, that I think is very good because I think institutional living is here to stay. I know a lot of people have predicted its demise. Um, but I think it'll be here to stay. And I think if we can make it more accessible, we've got to change the current model and change it dramatically. Yeah, I, I agree. And there are so many people who are in communities. My, both my parents passed last year, so they didn't have to live through this COVID time. But those who can't communicate, for example, my mom uh, was nonverbal the last two years of her life. So sitting in a room all by herself, nonverbal, couldn't, I couldn't call her. I'm, it's just really, um, I think COVID just has shined an absolute huge, enormous spotlight on the things that we need to be doing differently, that we can be doing differently. And it's not to say that we've set this up um, wrong, but every system gets the results it's designed to get. So yeah. it's time to change the system a little bit. Yeah, it really is. And in fact, our institutional system was designed many years ago, of course, and things change. It's like healthcare in general. You know, a hospital system is a system that really came into being 150 years ago. Institutional living was really post the Second World War, um, was designed in the 40s and 50s. It doesn't look fit for purpose anymore. And certainly not as a real estate state led business, right? You know, where cost was one of the great drivers, people could live together more cost effectively. I think we now know we can deploy technology, innovation and community services in much more intelligent, joined up ways. So we need to hasten that change really quickly in the next few years. Yeah, and what I find interesting, I just read a research report yesterday that showed um, some research on staff who are more at the staff level actually want more technology because they know what it can do. Whereas it's the upper echelons, shall I say, or the, the higher layers of leadership who are not really recognizing the impact that something might be able to have on their caregivers job satisfaction so that we reduce turnover, which reduces costs, which increases uh, quality of care because of continuity. Um, so many, so many ways to impact this. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I look at it as it has to be a care centric forward model. The care matters more than anything else. And too often we've just beautified the 40s and 50 designs and call it resort style living or patient centric care or whatever catchy phrase you want to use. No one understands what care first means though. And yeah. what it really means. And that's my biggest pet peeve is it's a real estate play first, blah, blah, blah. It is, no, it's the people first. How yeah. do you care for those residents, those older adults? What are you doing to make their lives every day better? Um, yeah. When we get to that point, we're going to see an amazing opportunity for just, just 
honoring getting older, not making this look so negative, but have shined such a positive light on it that I'm really excited that it's yeah. a great time for disruption. Great time for disruption. I agree. And a great time for entrepreneurship and, and for innovation and startups to come into this space because they can bring big different business models to play. Because uh, I think if you are in a real estate model and it's return on the physical asset, I think right. you know that's that's going to just prevail, right? Until someone disrupts it and yes. builds something different that is care centric, and the business model works because it's care centric and thrive centric. Right. Mm -hmm. um, once we prove that, that then scales, um, and then it will disrupt the industry that says, "Well, wait a minute, what about the real estate play?" Well, that's not enough by itself. Yes. Not enough by itself. That's the that's a great way to say it. It doesn't mean it's not a play. It's just not the only play, right? Exactly. It looks different. And mm -hmm. this industry, it's very exciting to be in because it is undergoing transformation as we speak. Yeah. And that that's always um, a great place to be. So tell us, we always ask the question, who do you consider to be a maverick in your life? Oh, well, many people have been a maverick in my life. I think we always start with our, our parents. So my parents, uh, I, I have one who's passed and one who hasn't, but both of my parents uh, were mavericks in their own way. And I think taught me to go and uh, make sure that I didn't just accept what was in front of me. So I'd, I'd start with them. And then I, I've had many people in my life who've been mentors uh, that have adopted the same mindset. Um, so there are individuals that I think I've associated with that I think think outside the box. I, I like that. Uh, I like thinking about what's new and different first rather than just accepting what's in front of me. So I don't want to call out any names, but uh, people who know me know who they are. Um, people are, are my go-to people. By the way, uh, I do like talking to people who, you know, in terms of their educational background are big picture thinkers, you know, physicists are good, for example, Francis, you'll be glad to know. Uh, uh, I'm a philosophy major by background. So I love right. talking to philosophers. So if I think about, um, you know, people like uh, Chip Conley, for example, hugely philosophical fellow, if you actually listen to what he says and around aging and some of those things. So uh, Tim Ferriss is another one. Listen yes. to their podcast, very philosophical. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a good way of thinking about things in context. I, that's perfect. I love the philosophical idea, just the whole concept, because when you when you have that kind of education, you're trained to think differently. You're trained to look at things differently and, and um, look at yeah. the way you think about thinking. Yeah, and it's outside in, you know, I think start with the big picture and then come into the small one. I think very often, I think we were talking about this before the show started. If you start with the micro issue in front of us, you can sometimes lose the context because you're drawn into the debate on the basis of which it's been framed. And, you know, you can actually reframe things if you think about it in big picture terms in the first place. And it may not be the issue you should be solving. It's not right. the one in front of you. It's, a, it's an issue upstream, to yeah. quote you earlier, Kathy. Yeah. My, my current favorite book. <laughs> Excellent. Um, all right. So we've had a great conversation here. What action would you want our listeners to take after hearing this? I, th I think think outside the box. I think one of the things we need most is to um, make sure that we are challenging everything in front of us. Um, don't just think in straight lines as much as you're able to do that. So I think that starts with reading widely, listening widely, paying attention to podcasts like this and the people that are on them, 
particularly where there are new ideas and challenge yourself. Uh, I'm very enamored of this idea of a growth mindset. Um, I think fixed mindsets are very invidious. We often don't know that we have them. Um, and that begins with challenging ourselves. Just accept the idea that maybe the way I'm thinking isn't the only way to do things. Um, and I think what that does is catalyze change in your life, whatever you're doing, whether you're a technologist or you're a startup person, an entrepreneur, or even if you're in institutional living, for example, and you don't like what's going on in front of you, just imagine how could this be different? I think if you do that, you're a long way down the road of going somewhere better. It's fantastic. That it's, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And it's a little bit of that stepping back, step back, look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah, it's excellent. Um, how are you creating hope for the way we age? So I, I run an accelerator, as you know, called Silver Moonshots. And uh, I run that as a nonprofit. Uh, Kathy knows this well. And uh, for me, it's a way of bringing more entrepreneurs into the space and helping them evolve their thinking so they can scale. Uh, we all know we need investment in terms of ideas going anywhere good. Uh, so, you know, you have to get on the radar of those people as a business that can really grow and scale and gain traction. So I'm playing my little part. I have a mentor team of 16 now involved with the Silver Moonshots team. Um, we've had 25 companies through the accelerator in the last uh, 18 months. That's awesome. So even though it's paused during COVID right now, it's, it's my little attempt to drag people more into... Uh, solving for problems in the older adult space. And I, I hope that brings some hope to the table. I, I think that's fantastic. That's what we need, right? We need to invigorate and reinvigorate and stimulate the creativeness that a lot of the entrepreneurs have and just have them start to put some of this stuff on its head. And, and really, like you said earlier, think outside the box. I mean, that is yeah. just, yeah, it's just such a needed idea and concept in aging services especially because i definitely feel like we can get stuck very easily in this space of doing it how we've always done it yeah so. true and bring more people into the space i mean it's it's been the poor person of the space in general i think aging has not been uh, a topic to which i think venture and private equity has paid a lot of attention historically it's right. starting to shift mm -hmm. uh, but we need to shift it further and faster yes sir Yes, agreed. And and I know, so those of you who are listening, uh, if you are an entrepreneur in this space where you have an idea to help the aging space, I encourage you to check out Silver Moonshots. And we're going to ask John here, how can people learn more about you? I've got it up on the screen here too. That's so. fantastic. Yeah. So silvermoonshots.org is a, is a website. Uh, we run a whole curriculum. There's another website called slamprocess.com which was um, the website dedicated to the last book that I wrote, which is really an attempt to give people a rubric, a kind of roadmap for how to build out a startup, um, not to go and give them slavish advice, but to give them the question framework, um, which would guide their investigations, particularly around customer need. Uh, yeah. So that might be worth taking. Uh, and, and I'm more than happy to connect with people. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm John C. Warner on LinkedIn. There's no H in my name, just J. Owen. Francis, you are on it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, this is uh, really, but the, again, we appreciate because that mentorship, the leadership that you have and the experience can be an invaluable resource for some of the, you know, young, not young necessary age, but young entrepreneurs who are diving into this space and finding that mentor and finding that coach can be a big help to be successful. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what we need is begin to share our resources to encourage and empower those entrepreneurs that want to have a positive impact. Because the coolest part to me about the industry is not only can you change the industry, but you can have immediate impact on people, which yeah. to me, that is what's so important to me is being able yeah. to touch someone positively and in, in, in showcase how aging can be when we all get creative and all get a kind of contribution to to the discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. And touch up to 120 million people in the 50 plus today and all the ones coming behind it that inevitably are going to get there. Yes, sir. Right. And, and I'm just going to add, Francis, really quickly. It's not just the young entrepreneurs. Any age, um, I'm in my second, what do you call it? Second act, I guess right. people call it. I'm in my second act. And what people can bring, both young coming out of school, mm -hmm. as well as people who've been in the workforce in other industries, we bring a different viewpoint. And, and that's been really, I think, impactful in the industry. And I guess what it's I meant really by young, young entrepreneurs is those first time entrepreneurs that may be older. I mean, young collectively is you haven't been an entrepreneur before. And I think what you said, Catherine, is so important is don't let age stop you. If you're 40, 50, 60, 70, and you've got an idea, yep. let's see what can happen. And I'd, and I'd add one little thing as well. I mean, I think entrepreneurship is a skill to be learned. So if you've been in corporate life all your life, or you know, you've been in a small business and you don't think you're an entrepreneur, and you know, maybe you're 50 or 60, uh, you can learn those skills and bring a lot to the table. Um, and you, you kind of get in charge of your own life. And I, I think that's a pretty major thing as you sail into your third act in particular. Uh, so there you go. Well said, well said, love it. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate you. We'll put all the contact information, how to reach you in the show notes. Yes, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion. And, and again, one that's needed and one that is needed. Very good. Well, thank you both. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you.